Hello. I'm going to be talking again about the sovereignty myth in Celtic cultures and we'll be turning once again to look at a story from Ireland. Uh, in the first video in this series, we looked at the story of Con uh, travelling to the other world, travelling through the mystic mists and discovering the sovereignty figure there in the story of the, the vision of the phantom, uh, Bal and Skull. Uh, and standing on the stone of destiny and the stone of destiny crying out and thereby giving us this idea that every king of Tara is destined to stand on the stone of destiny. And if he doesn't stand on the stone of destiny, well, he's not a proper king and so on and so on. And we met the sovereignty figure who uh, served a special intoxicating drink, uh, an ale probably, uh, to Con. Very interesting uh, depiction of the sovereignty as a young woman who is essentially preparing to be betrothed to the king, thereby giving this idea of the king marrying the land. And we're essentially going to look at a variation of this motif in another Irish story. This time we're going to be looking at uh, King Neil. Uh, Neil, once again, was one of the great high kings of Ireland whose seat was at Tara. This variation on the sovereignty motif uh, appears in what could be an 11th century Irish text. There's a little bit of disagreement. And this is another of the adventures, an extra in the Irish tradition. But this time, this is the adventures of the sons of Achid. Uh, or Ochid Mumadon. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. The version I'm using here is translated by John Carey, and I have condensed it a little bit. We're not going to do the whole story. We're only going to be doing about 50% of it. I've simplified different uh, parts of the story just so that we can move through it a bit quicker so we can get through to the interpretation part, of course. The King of Ireland had five sons, Brian, Eilil, Fiacra, Fergus, and Neil. The queen was the mother of Brian, Fiacra, and Fergus, and Eilil. Chiron, daughter of the king of the Saxons, was the mother of Neil. And the queen had a hatred of Neil, for it was in infidelity to her that the king had begotten him upon Chiron. And so the queen put great hardship upon Chiron. This essentially means that Neil's mother was probably a slave in the social context of the story. Daughter to the king of the Saxons, but essentially someone who had been either hostaged or kidnapped. However she finds her way to the court of the Irish king, she becomes his lover and bears him a child, Neil. The queen is obviously jealous, being the mother of the four official sons. Now, this is an interesting story in the sense that it's not necessarily that Neil is illegitimate, but it could be argued that his mother, in a sense, is an illegitimate Irish noblewoman because she is, of course, a slave from a different nation, kidnapped or hostaged. So she is a second-class citizen, for sure. She is definitely in the lower class, the lowest possible class as a slave. So she doesn't have full personhood in that sense. And that's one of the interesting aspects of this story that we'll get into in a moment. So the queen is jealous of Neil's mother, Chiron, 
and therefore she essentially tries to punish her. This is how great the hardship was on Chiron. She alone had to carry the water of Tara as a slave woman, and every other slave woman was left to her own will apart from her. So all the other slaves had been given a modicum of freedom apart from Chiron. And she was forced to do all this when she was pregnant with Neil, so that the infant might perish in her womb. She reached her time of giving birth, and for all that she did not cease from her toil. Then she bore a son upon the green of Tara, lying beside her bucket. Neil won't be the first child in Celtic myth to be born in special circumstances with a relatively jealous stepmother. We can also think of Kiluch from the story of Kiluch and Alwen, who is born in not exactly the same circumstances, but relatively sim uh, similar. His mother is endangered while giving birth. In that story, uh, she even dies. And then there is a jealous stepmother who kind of curses or attempts to impede Kiluch's development as a nobleman. And the Irish queen here is playing a similar role. Now, Chiron did not dare to take the boy up from the ground, but left him in that place exposed to the birth. And none of the men of Ireland dared to take him away for fear of the queen for everyone stood in great fear of her. After that, Torna, the poet, came into the midst of the green and saw the baby all alone, and the birds attacking him. Torna took the boy into his bosom and revealed to him everything which would happen after that. So Torna, of course, is fulfilling the broader role of a poet in the Celtic tradition in having a prophetic ability, able to foretell the future. He has magic powers and he can see what's going to become of his new foster child, of course. There's a similar motif here in the fourth branch of the Mabinogi, with Gwytion taking on responsibility for uh, a foster son in Llei. After that, Torna took the boy with him and reared him. And neither Torna nor his foster son came to Tara after that until the boy was fit for kingship, so until he'd come of age, essentially. After that, he and Neil came to Tara and came upon Chiron fetching water to Tara. Then Neil said to her, leave the work alone. I do not dare, she said, because of the queen. My mother will not be toiling, he said, and I the son of the king of Ireland. Then he brought her to Tara and put a purple garment upon her. The queen was angry and thought ill of that. The men of Ireland were saying then that Neil would be king after his father. It's worth bearing this episode in mind because it is interlaced with a later episode in the story. There's a mirroring going on uh, when we come to meet the second important female character. But it's worth noting at this early stage, that Neil has essentially changed the status of his own mother. This is the first of his great feats, his great deeds, if you like, is to give her status according to who he is, he being the son of the King of Ireland, and therefore his mother should be respected and honoured. She shouldn't be a slave carrying water. Now, bear in mind, this is the first woman we meet with, who is connected with water in some sense, and who also has a change in her status. She is transformed in some way. 
We're going to meet another one of these in a moment. The Queen said to the King, after everybody's been talking about Neil essentially going against the word of the Queen by raising his mother's status and honouring her, putting on this purple garment, uh, making her perhaps uh, an official subject of the court. We're not sure. But essentially, after Neil has gone against the Queen's word, the Queen said to the King, Judge between your sons, said she, which of them will get your inheritance? So now that there's a new contender for the throne on the scene, the Queen is obviously concerned about her own sons and their own hopes to succeed their father because another son of the King has turned up, thereby threatening their position. Now, this is the bit of the story that I've cut out. There's essentially three different episodes of all of the sons, the five sons, being tested in some way and their characters being revealed to us in a symbolic manner. We're not going to look at the first two episodes. We're just going to look at the third because it's this third episode that involves a sovereignty figure. Then the boys went and hunted. They went far astray after that, after the wood closed up around them on every side. So they're out in the wilds, they're away from civilization, they're in a strange, wild place in the wilderness. When they rested from their wandering, they built a fire and cooked some of what they had killed in the hunt and ate until they were full. For those of you paying attention, you will notice that the hunting motif is almost always used as a way of introducing the main protagonists, these boys in this case, to supernature. We're guessing that there's going to be a supernatural encounter uh, arriving pretty soon in the story. That's usually what hunting signifies. After they've eaten their fill of what they've hunted, they were parched with a great thirst from the cooking. Let someone go to find us water, they said. Bear in mind, this is the second time we're hearing of water in a significant way in this story. Let someone go to find us water, they said. I will go, said Fergus. The lad went to find water until he came upon a well, and he found an old woman guarding the well. This is how the hag was. Every joint and limb of her, from top to toe, as black as coal. The grey, bristly hair growing through the top of her head was like the tail of a wild horse. She could cut off the green branch of an acorn-bearing oak with the sickle of green teeth that was in her head, reaching to her ear. So her teeth are so monstrous, they grow out of her mouth and curl around to her ear in a type of sickle. Her eyes were black and smoky, her nose crooked and wide-nostrilled, her belly sinewy, speckled, fluxy, diseased, her shins crooked, twisted, knotty, broad as shovels, and she had big knees and grey nails. Fearsome was the appearance of the hag. For those of you following the Astoria Taliesin course, you will, of course, be able to see in this very early description of the hag one of the themes that's continued on into the witch stereotype in the European tradition in general. 
these hags don't just appear in Irish uh, story. They also appear, of course, in Welsh story and plenty of other stories across Europe. But you can see here one of the influences on the later witch stereotype. Of course, this has a bearing on our discussion on Kerry Dwen on the course, but we're not going to get into that now. But it's just worth pointing that out for those of you following the course. Well then, said the lad. Well then, indeed, said the hag. Are you guarding the well, said the lad. I am, said she. Will you permit me to take some of the water with me, he said. I will, she said, if I get a kiss on the cheek from you. No, he said, no water will be attained from me, she said. I give my word, he said, that I would sooner die of thirst than give you a kiss. After that, the lad went to where his brothers were and told them that he had not found water. Eileel went in search of water and came upon the same well and refused to kiss the hag and he turned back without water and did not admit that he had found the well. Brian, the eldest of the sons, went in search of water and came upon the same well, and he refused to kiss the hag and turned back without water. Fiacre went and found the well and the hag and asked for water. I will give it, she said, and give me a kiss for it. He gave her a peck on the cheek, just a little kiss. You will visit Tara, she said. That came true. Two kings of his race obtained the kingship of Ireland, Dathi and Eileel Molt, and none obtained it from the race of the other sons, Brian, Eileel and Fergus. Then he turned back without water. So we can see that this is the supernatural encounter preceded by the hunt. This hag is apparently prophesying whose descendants are likely to become High Kings of Ireland to take the seat of Tara through asking them to give her a kiss and their responses appear to predict this future outcome. Now, of course, as you might expect, this being a story concerning Neil, his response is going to be quite different. Neil went in search of water and came upon the same well. Give me water, woman, he said. I will, said she, and give me a kiss. Besides giving a kiss, I will lie beside you. Then he sank down upon her and gave her a kiss. But when he looked upon her after that, there was no girl in the world whose manner or appearance were lovelier than hers. Every joint of her, from top to toe, was like new-fallen snow in hollows. She had plump, queenly forearms, long, slender fingers, straight, rosy calves with two sandals of white metal on a gentle, soft white feet, and a great mantle of purple fleece upon her clasped with a brooch of white silver. She had bright, pearly teeth and a large, sagacious eye, and a mouth red as parton. I think that means a type of red leather, so uh, luscious red lips, essentially. That is a change of shape, woman, said the lad. That is true, she said. Who are you, said the lad. I am the sovereignty, she said. Notice that we've had the extreme description of the hag and now the extreme to the opposite direction. The, the polar opposite of the hag is this beautiful girl. 
just very quickly here, even though the concept of maiden mother crone in some senses is a relatively modern concept, here we may actually have a very ancient version of it. It's quite usual for Celtic scholars, researchers to assume that Maiden Mother Crone is something that's really been formulated in modern paganism. But I think that we can see quite clearly here that we have the mother in the beginning connected with water. Then we have the crone connected with water and also the maiden also connected with water. Water connects all three of these women who each, of course, represents a different phase of womanhood. So it would be worth paying attention to these women as part of the same figure, part of the same archetype, perhaps. Regardless, let's take a look at what this sovereignty figure says. And she said this, King of Tara. So she's talking to Neil now. So he's definitely going to be King of Tara, according to the sovereignty. I am the sovereignty. I will tell you its great benefit. So this is the benefits that I can bestow upon you as the sovereignty. It will belong to your descendants forever above every kindred. So against every other lineage, you will be successful, essentially. That is the true reason for which I speak. With your hospitality, your generosity and harsh advance in battle, bravery or ferocity, these being the two qualities most mentioned in praise poetry, not only in Ireland, but also in Wales, generosity and bravery being the qualities of the ideal nobleman. With your hospitality and harsh advance in battle, men will not be able to withstand you. You will be strong and skillful. Skillfulness, of course, being another of the qualities in Celtic nobility. Specifically, we can think of Lu and we can think of Manawadan, for example. You will be a bloodstained, victorious leader. Brilliant, sturdy Tara will be yours and supremacy over the men of Ireland. Your progeny will not be deprived of its fief, save by two from the lineage of Fiacre. Fiacre, of course, is the lad who pecked her on the cheek, thereby gaining himself just a small amount of the sovereignty, not the whole beautiful sovereignty herself, just a little bit of the sovereignty. But because Neil was willing to give himself fully to the sovereignty in the form of a hag, he wins the majority of the sovereignty, let's say. Go now to your brothers, she said, and take water with you. And you and your descendants will have the kingship forever, except for two from the race of Fiacre, Darthi and Ailil Malt, and one king from Munster, uh, Brian Boroma. I think that's Brian Baru, isn't it? All of those kings will be without opposition. And as you have seen me at first fearsome, wolfish, terrifying, and at last beautiful, thus is the sovereignty. For it is not obtained without battle and conflicts, but at last it is fair and gracious to anyone. Now, this is interesting to pay attention to because here we have once again the Irish storytellers being explicit about their symbolic use of narrative. They are saying that here we have an explicitly symbolic figure and we're going to interpret her for you so that you understand the depth of the tale. 
this happens a few times in Irish storytelling. The Welsh storytellers never do this. They never explicitly explain the symbolic meaning of their of their tales. But the Irish storytellers do do this. Uh, not all the time, but every now and again, they'll give these interpretations of the symbols they've previously presented in the story, which is interesting because it confirms the idea that traditional Celtic storytelling was a symbolic uh, affair. The audience were meant to try and read and interpret the symbols in the story. They were mythological in the modern sense. They uh, contained a second order of meaning, uh, here explicitly revealed uh, to be the meaning of the sovereignty. Difficult to achieve in the beginning, so harsh and ugly and difficult and uncomely, but once it's been obtained, it becomes fair and beautiful and a joy to be with. And also, of course, a founding feature of a lineage. That's obviously one of the reasons why the sovereignty is usually uh, embodied in a female character, because they are abundant with children, they grant a lineage, they give a future to the family by bestowing these children upon the kings of Ireland. So we can see there that there is an explicit symbolic nature to the story, but I would say that it's not just the sovereignty figure herself who is an important symbol. I would also say that the water is another important symbol, not discussed or interpreted by the storytellers, but I would say it's clearly there connecting the, these important female characters in the story. In that first line there, the sovereignty says, go now to your brothers, she said, and take water with you. In the next section, the sovereignty says, but do not give the water to your brothers until they give you gifts. That is, until they cede their seniority to you and you hang up your weapon a hand's breadth above theirs. Basically, don't serve them the water until they've accepted you as their senior, essentially, as the next High King of Ireland. That's what that means. Neil placing his sword above theirs is also symbolic of his superiority. Yeah, The symbol of his might is above theirs. The symbol of his power is above theirs. That makes sense. So what is this water? Because it's interesting. The water is closely connected with two female characters, both of whom are transformed. The first female character is, of course, Chiron. Neil's mother, who is a slave carrying water. She has her status raised by Neil. He transforms her in many ways. She wears uh, a purple gown, a purple garment, which demarks this transformation not only in her status, but also in her identity. As I said before, slaves weren't really persons in the full sense. They didn't have a personhood in a legal sense because they were devoid of most of the rights afforded to normal citizens or average people, the free nobility, essentially. But in granting her that status, Neil gives her personhood and transforms her. Again, in the second half of the story, Neil transforms another woman who is taking care of the water. This time he transforms the hag into uh, a beautiful maiden. So Neil here 
is the transforming agent for both of these women, both of whom are connected to water. Now, in the previous story of Con visiting the other world, we see that the serving of the ceremonial drink is in many ways the granting of sovereignty. Here, all of these three women are connected with the water again. This sacred drink, which is at the centre of the sovereignty ceremony that we looked at last week. Now, that's interesting that water in this case is the sacred drink because, of course, water is the magical substance that brings life to the land. There's clearly an association between water on the land and abundance and the female figure that embodies that abundance. We can see that, uh, that clear connection between all three there. I think it is also interesting that there is a connection between Neil's mother and the sovereignty. It's not that they're identically the same, although we could say that there's maybe a, a Freudian aspect here in that in the Oedipal sense, Neil is making love to his symbolic mother in the sovereignty figure. His mother being one aspect of this triple goddess, let's say, the maiden mother crone. But there's also this idea that Neil is transforming them. And here I think that we need to look at how aristocracy in particular and aristocracy that promotes this binary myth of power, this idea that you need a man and a woman conjoined to bring about abundance and fertility and, you know, for the life of the land to be possible, you need a man and a woman embodying the different aspects of the territory, essentially. It's interesting because the sovereignty left to her own devices cannot accomplish the sovereignty on, on her own. She can't make the whole territory abundant. She can't transform herself without the influence, without contact with Neil, the embodiment of the warrior elite, the embodiment of the sacred masculine, and so on and so on. So it's interesting to note how sovereignty is different here. Whereas in the story of Con, it's as if the sovereignty acts independently. She may grant herself the sovereignty onto, we're assuming, the lineage of kings that she chooses. In this story, we need the agency of the male counterpart to make things happen, to make things work. So a slight variation on the sovereignty myth there. And a very interesting one, because, of course, this idea of the hag being transformed into a beautiful woman is a motif we find elsewhere in European storytelling. We're not going to get into that now, but there are various famous examples of that motif being used uh, also for different reasons. But here we can see it perhaps in its earliest recorded form. <laughs> 